Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies, ways to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have Dina Zelinsky uh, from the New York. Genome Project or NY Genome. Dina, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for connecting. I appreciate it. Um, can you tell folks what you're working on over at uh, Columbia? Sure. Uh, so I work in an academic research lab in Yaniv Ehrlich's lab, and we're at the New York Genome Center and are affiliated with the computer science department at Columbia University. And we honestly, we work on a bunch of different projects. Um, there's never a dull day. I've I've been in the lab for six years, and um, I can never come into lab and say there's nothing to do. We've always got a very diverse number of projects going on, from human genetics to storing data and DNA, uh, which is one of our most recent publications. Is it storing data using DNA? Yes. So we recently published a paper where we were able to store a bunch of files um, in strands of DNA. And then we were able to sequence the DNA and fully recover the files. Wow. Well, I know the human body essentially does this. Can you talk about how the human body does this? And it sounds like you guys took inspiration from that to store data. You know, can you go over yeah, the two it, and contrast them? Exactly. Well, more than the human body, it really just comes down to the DNA molecule itself. It has had a lot of time to become... Uh, kind of an optimized system. It's very stable. It's very dense. Uh, you've heard stories probably of recovering DNA from cavemen uh, from, you know, 100,000 years ago. And granted that DNA is, is quite fragmented, but we're still able to sequence it um, and recover some information about that individual. And so we decided, um, among some other collaborators too, um, to store data in DNA. And this is this is not entirely new. Uh, people have been working on this for the last few years, including George Church uh, at Harvard. And so what we wanted to do is sort of improve on the current methods. Um, and so we took one approach that uses a different algorithm called fountain codes. And by using this algorithm, we were able to store more information than previous studies and also recover the data without any errors. Wow. How much data can be stored in a um, a single DNA molecule? Well, the theoretical maximum is about two bits per um, single DNA base. So you have your A's, T's, C's, and G's. Um, but this is not actually realistic because not all DNA molecules are created equal. <clears throat> there are some DNA molecules that are difficult to synthesize and sequence. Um, and this generally consists of... DNA sequences that are highly repetitive, uh, we call these homopolymers. So if you have a bunch of A's in a row, uh, the synthesizer and the sequencer do not like these. Uh, we also um, have some issues with GC-rich regions. So these are regions of DNA that contain a lot of G's paired with C's. Um, and that's because there are three hydrogen bonds between those. So um, it has, you know, it, it makes it difficult to both seek uh, sequence and synthesize. So we try and avoid these GC runs and these homopolymer runs. 
um, but that also limits the amount of data we can store um, in each individual oligo. We basically will chop up um, a bunch of files. You know, when you compress data on your computer into, say, a zip archive, um, you're basically just kind of converting that into zeros and ones. And so it's the way our approach basically is just a different way of of packing up those zeros and ones um, and balancing how much data we can store while also adding some redundancy. Um, that's really what data compression comes down to is, is you have to add some redundancy to your data, but you also want to limit how much redundancy you add because that will take up space, uh, storage space. Um, and so once we take those zeros and ones and package them up into what we call droplets, that's where the DNA fountain gets its name, uh, we can right. then simply convert those zeros and ones into A's, T's, T's, and G's. That's actually the easiest step. You basically just go from A to zero zero, T to zero one, um, G and C to one zero and one one, respectively. Uh, and so once we have that, we can uh, send a list of sequences that are a hundred nucleotides long. So a hundred, um, uh, sorry, two hundred um, A's, T's, C's, and G's, and we can just send that to a company that synthesizes DNA, and then they'll return this DNA in a tube. And then we simply sequence it and get all our data back. Why? Why bother doing this? What's um, we have computers, we have uh, you know billions of transistors on a chip. Why bother using DNA to store information? So as you brought up, um, and when we talked a bit about how long DNA can last, it can last orders of magnitude longer than your standard hard drive or your server. Uh, DNA would be stable, cold and dry for hundreds, even thousands of years, whereas you have to replace um, solid hard drives every you know, few years, maybe 10 years. And this is just gets really expensive. Um, and the more you read and write these hard drives, um, the more chance of your data being corrupt. So DNA is about, a really um, elegant solution to storing data long term. It's amazing. What about the density of the storage? Is DNA uh, able to store data more densely than current transistors and chips or less densely? Yeah, absolutely. So to give you a sort of a toy example, like um, an extreme example, most of the world's data has actually been generated in the last few years. Uh, this is a big function of social media and, I guess, oversharing uh, data on the Internet. Uh, but a one terabyte hard drive right now currently weighs about 150 grams. And we were able in our study to fit uh, 215,000 times as much data in one gram of DNA. So basically, you if you store data in DNA, you could fit all that data in the back of a, a pickup truck. <laughs> wow. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's a little that's, more efficient. <laughs> that's crazy. So So DNA is thousands of times more efficient. Well, almost a million times. Yeah, I guess a million times more efficient. Yeah, I mean, two hundred fifteen thousand times more data in just one gram. Wow. So, I would say so. Um, it lasts orders of magnitude longer than uh, you know the solid DNA. state drives, etc. Yeah, huh. yeah. I mean, it's it's very robust and it'll be stable for many years in just a refrigerator, um, even at room temperature. It would be stable for quite a while. How can this be? I mean, what, what is it about DNA that allows it to do this and have these amazing properties? It is just a very 
simple, stable molecule. Um, and it's mostly just by, we've learned just by being able to sequence DNA from those cavemen hundreds thousands years of, of years ago. Um, and just by storing DNA in the lab, we've, we've been able to show that it is just highly stable um, as long as wow. it's kept relatively happy, dry and cold. Can you um, <clears throat> store DNA using the code that is already there? Meaning, can you store information um, using a living organism's DNA as the coding or encoding? Or do you have to make your own custom sequence to store data that you want? So right now we have to use synthetic DNA, um, and this is actually the most expensive part um, and kind of the bottleneck to really making this useful, to making DNA storage a thing. Uh, to give you an example, in our study, it costs about $7,000 to write the data, to, to write the DNA, and about $2,000 to read it, to sequence it. Uh, so it's still pretty costly, um, but that's because... When biologists request synthetic DNA, you want it to be of very high quality. You want to know that if you ask for an A or a T at a specific position, that that molecule is going to actually have an A or a T at that position. Um, so it just mm. takes up a lot of machine time to generate these uh, high-quality oligos, they're called. And that's why we stick to about 200 bases, because if you get longer than that, uh, the quality goes down with both reading and writing the DNA. So... When you're making these custom oligos or DNA, um, are you going to be able to make um, certain sequences that repeat? And will it, what, what will make it cheaper and more scalable in your mind over the next, you know, let's say five to ten years so that it yeah, can become so widespread? It really just comes down to using uh, basically a quick and dirty synthesis. Right now, it's a very um, quality-driven process. And if we can... Uh, you know, make sure that our method can handle this quick and dirty synthesis, uh, then it would definitely become a reality. And we sort of demonstrate this in our study in that we made many copies of the DNA that was sent to us from the company. And we do this using PCR so we can make, you know, many, many copies of that original amount. Because one issue with storing data in DNA is that that DNA is finite. What you get in the tube is what you get but we can use the polymerase chain reaction to amplify this library. But by doing PCR, you're introducing errors. That's just part of the, the, the DNA copying process, part of the um, one of the flaws of the, the enzymes, the polymerases that are used. And so we were able to show that even by introducing errors, by making deep copies of our library, uh, we were able to fully recover the data. Uh, so it will just come down to uh, using quicker synthesis uh, that won't generate as high-quality sequences. Uh, but as long as our decoder can handle it, then we shouldn't have a problem. So, so I think most, most of the work will need to happen there. So so what do you see? What's the uh, trajectory in terms of cost and speed to do this over the next few years? When do you guess it'll become uh, commercially viable? So I think it's going to require um, some larger-scale interest. And I know that there are some companies uh, who are exploring DNA storage you know, when, when those giant computers came out to store data, they were the size of a room, and it took a lot of research, a lot of money uh, to get down to USB drives we use today. And so I think um, once this sort of uh, gains widespread interest and more research is done into uh, sort of 
pushing um, how much data we can store and into synthesizing DNA more cheaply, um, I think it will become a real possibility in 10 years or so. Um, still be costly, but again, if we can reduce those synthesis costs, that would be huge. And DNA sequencing costs continue to drop. Uh, they've been dropping exponentially, so um, soon enough that will be basically a non-issue. And we, we envision long-term storage, so you would only need to sequence the, the DNA if you want to access it, but it would be very stable to just store it long-term. If you, um, if you knew an organism's uh, DNA sequence, could you store information without changing their sequence? Could you use their sequence as a cipher and still store um, data on the organism like, or use their, their own DNA as a code to decode data that's uh, unique to them? So are you asking if you could store data in an organism's genome, like a, a human genome, for example? Yeah. Yeah, so right. this is well, actually one of the questions own. we've gotten. Um, it's very interesting. Um, my personal opinion is it's definitely not worth the risk. Your DNA already tells sort of your, your family history. Um, and we had some questions about, you know, can I store maybe some family photos um, in my DNA to be passed on to my relatives? <laughs> and it's it's a very cool idea, but it's like, you know, half of your genome is repetitive. It doesn't necessarily do a whole lot, so we think. Um, but I don't think it's worth the risk of inserting some family photos in your DNA <laughs> where you could just store those family photos in synthetic DNA in some freezer. Uh, so I think it's a bit of a stretch. I think it, it could be done, just certainly not worth the risk. Well, you know what's the bad joke and all that? It's the true selfie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Taking <laughs> selfie to a new extreme. Yeah, interesting. Um, what is your research revealed to you about um, either the human genome or animal genome or any genome you've studied now that you could you see its capacity to store data? I mean, how much data does it hint at that is already being stored by our genetic code maybe we didn't know about? Yeah, so one thing I've learned is that we still have an incredible amount to learn. The human genome uh, reference sequence was only completed about 14 years ago. Um, and we've, we've certainly learned a lot. We've learned a lot about different diseases and traits. Um, but even those simple, what we call Mendelian disorders, um, many of them still remain unsolved. And it's I've worked on some rare genetic disorders, some complex disorders like Parkinson's, and it's just endless the amount of work it's going to take, the amount of genomes it's going to take to understand these different uh, traits and diseases. Uh, but in terms of how much is going on there, I mean, you know, you've got three billion base pairs. It's it's a lot of data, and that all of that DNA just fits inside a, a single cell. It's pretty incredible um, how much information is in our DNA. And, you know, only a percent of it uh, encodes proteins, but we're learning more and more about those non-coding regions. And we're learning that they actually do play an important role um, in different traits and diseases, which is why I would counsel against uh, storing family photos in, in those regions. Right. Are you able to give a, an estimate, a translation of how much data is within us? Is there any way to uh, to say it's it's as if we have uh, ten exabytes of data, or is it is it not? Has anyone tried to do that, or is it not possible? Uh, not to my knowledge. Um, 
No, I'm 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 not really sure. Um, if someone has looked specifically into to measuring the amount of data, um, but we one thing that we do know is that it's it's incredibly incredibly dense. That there is in fact a lot of information encoded in those uh, three billion base pairs. Yeah, that that is it's amazing. Um, is there anything that you found that uh, can store beta data even more densely or better than DNA, RNA, anything else in the body or in uh, in living organisms that's an even better uh, potential storage avenue? There has been some work into synthetic polymers, but as in terms of naturally occurring molecules mm-hmm. like DNA and RNA, um, I don't think it gets better than than DNA. And what does that tell you? Or an uh, RNA is that it's it's not as stable as DNA. Gotcha. Okay. Um, is there any particular organism whose DNA um, seems to lend itself to storage better than others, or is it just DNA is DNA and it it works? Yeah, it's really just about the the DNA molecule itself, not really organism specific. Well, I was going to ask you um, any other surprises, or what surprises have you had working on this project? What have you learned that you're just shocked to learn or surprised to learn that we haven't talked about yet? So I have to be honest, the day-to-day in research, um, it's kind of just like any other job. It's very cool. I personally, I love it. Um, I love continually learning. But it's it's very rare that you have these sort of eureka moments. It's very cool when things work. But often when things work, we're kind of, we, we question it. We're skeptics. As a scientist, you have to be a bit of a skeptic. Um, so I would rarely say that I... I'm ever shocked in the lab, just maybe pleasantly pleasantly surprised when things work. Okay. And then, um, well, feelings that you've gotten from working on this, have you been so amazed that it's um, it's made you question anything or has it reaffirmed um, any beliefs that you had or you just think it's a fascinating, fascinating thing that you enjoy working on? Yeah, I think the latter. I mean, working in science, you just get to make a small dent in mm-hmm. our in our understanding of the world around us. I mean, science is sort of the foundation of our of our deepest knowledge, but it's it's always constantly changing. Um, but it's it's really amazing to just even make a tiny contribution into understanding the way things work. And oftentimes things sort of affirm prior knowledge, but sometimes you're surprised and and you sort of question everything a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, I think mostly we are just pleasantly surprised by by the things we we've been learning especially about our own genome. Um and just to go back to your question about I think um maybe I misunderstood your question about how much data the human genome would represent. Um right. I mean it's if, if you take those 3 billion base pairs um you would probably get a few definitely a few hundred megabytes of data um since as I mentioned every base theoretically can can be encoded by 2 bits. Okay. So yeah, a lot of lot of data in there. <laughs> any um any commercial applications that uh, people are you know looking for uh, beyond you know beyond storing data? Um, any particular applications that you're being asked about? You mean in addition to that study? Yeah. So um, yes, most scientists, or I guess I don't know if I can speak for everyone, but um, with basic research. Um, our goal is really just in in trying to to better understand things. Um, it's rare that we try and commercialize things. We're all about sharing. Uh, even to give you an idea, we recently, I think it was about two years ago, we developed 
an application to help scientists in the lab to um, aliquot, to pipette samples. This can be very tedious because one of the rites of passage in molecular biology is learning that you're just combining minute volumes of clear liquid. So it can be kind of maddening when you're doing this for many samples. So we developed this web-based app called iPipette. Um, and certainly we could have tried to commercialize it, but um, we made it completely open sourced and, and shared it with the community. Um, that's just kind of the, the way we operate. And so... That's um, great. Yeah, we're all about what sharing. What did you do? <laughs> what did the help you do? Yeah. Yeah, so you could check out the website. It's ipipet.teamerlich.org. And what it does is it will illuminate wells of standard 96 or 384 well plates in the lab. And so you can upload a simple Excel file um, saying, I need to take this sample from well A1 and pipette it into, into well G1 in a different plate. Um, and so it just it keeps the, the biologists a little bit more sane. <laughs> um, basically, the goal uh, really was to improve reproducibility of different experiments. Um, and we also had some struggles with uh, top-of-the-line liquid handling robot and found that it was much easier if we just took the reins and, and combined our samples ourselves. What's yeah? What's the difficulty in pipetting? Is it just hard to hold your attention on what you're doing? And um, yeah, I mean you have to be very focused. But uh, we're human, so if you're even if you're very focused, you might pipette uh, sample into the wrong well. And so if that well is illuminated, um, it definitely decreases the chances of of someone making an error. And I've used it myself. My background is actually mostly in wet lab. It's only in the past few years that I've become uh, more of a computational biologist. Uh, so I definitely okay. understood the the woes of um, tedious pipetting. Uh, it can be very stressful. You definitely have to focus. So we hope that uh, this would help people keep more sane in the lab. And we've gotten some great feedback for it. Hey. Okay. All right. Any um. Any final words or anything you want to say about the uh, the DNA storage project, or you think we've covered uh, pretty much all the bases? No, I think we've covered uh, covered the important parts. I think it really is a possibility that um, this will become a reality. It it may be that you won't know that your data is being stored on DNA. Uh, for example, if you use any of the Amazon Web Services, um, mm. it could be that instead of your data being stored on a um, in a server farm, it'll be stored in a freezer, sort of a freezer farm. Uh, that's sort of what we envision for, for DNA storage. So the data centers of the, fut of the future, instead of being um, just rooms full of computers, they could be a big refrigerator with uh, you know thousands of vials of DNA? Exactly, yep. Crazy. Sounds like the Matrix, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dina, well, thank you for coming. It's been uh, very interesting, and I, I appreciate your time. Great, thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. <laughs>